Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Well, um, we're going to continue this coming Sunday in Ordinary Life talking about what we were talking about last Sunday. A little bit, that's yeah. What I, that's what I have, have determined. We're going um, to, I'm going to do some more um, religious literacy stuff because I feel obligated to do it and uh, it's fun for me to do. Mm. Well, you're good at it. You're really I love, <laughs> I love doing it. I this is your, it. this is your wheelhouse, as they say. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know how accurate the analytics are about the mailings, the emails that go out from Constant Contact. <clears throat> we have about 1,200 people, I think, who get the emails. Not nearly that many um, probably watch or listen to Ordinary Life, and I don't know how many about this podcast, mm-hmm. but occasionally I will still get an email or two a week from somebody who says something like, you don't believe in, or mm-hmm. how can you get away with, or whatever, which reflects, I think, kind of how the public has has been um, so miseducated about the Jesus story, and uh, you know we're we're heading into that season of the year. I have a, a line that I think I made up myself, but I've seen it other places. I came up with it years ago, and that is that if the Christmas decorations are up, it can mean only one thing: Thanksgiving is not far behind. <laughs> <laughs> we get we get into the season earlier and earlier every year, yeah. and of course this year with COVID is so different. I did, yeah. Did you know that Christmas is the only religious holiday in um, the, the what became known as the the Roman Catholic Empire? Huh. The only religious holiday. That is both a religious holiday and a federal holiday? It is um, really not hard to believe that we've become as sort of Christian-centric if for nearly 2,000 years that has been the case, right? And we've inherited so much of this Western civilization, and I use civilization in quotes, um, we've inherited so much of that ethos, right? That, that, That Christian is dominant, that uh, European is dominant, that even uh, colonization is dominant, that white maleness is dominant. These are these are the inheritances that we've had for hundreds of years. Hundreds. And people who have never been to church can still tell you the Christmas story or a version yeah. of it. Most can, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know there are no camels in the Christmas story? Nuh-uh. <laughs> what about chickens? <laughs> No chickens. <sighs> I hate that I've been lied to all these years. Yeah. Kidding. <laughs> but it's still a great story. I'm going to say that what it, yeah. the, the birth story is a metaphor, a parable. You know, that, that there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn. 
was a parable, parabolic way of saying that we need to make room in our own hearts for the birth of the sacred. Yeah. And um, the, the sacred will take whatever lowly place she can find. <laughs> That's right. I, and even have donkeys and mules and maybe chickens and goats and camels alongside. Well, I don't feet. think any camels. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't the there, desert. So there may, there, there may have been chickens and goats. They yeah. went to Egypt after the yeah. birth. Yeah. So, so it's also interesting how the story has picked up images, depending probably on where it traveled. So camels probably got inserted somewhere in, you know, That's, in the, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I was I, the best book that I have read about the symbolism of the Christ story is that Edward Edinger book um, that I have mentioned to you. I'm, you know, I have I bought that book and I have not yet read it. It's just so beautiful because it's about the metaphor of something being um, of dying, being born, and dying and being resurrected in our psyche. And it's not to say that Jesus himself was a metaphor. I think we can be pretty confident that he existed historically. Like there's absolutely. Yeah. So, but it, but it's the, it's the, the divine story is the metaphor that um, sometimes I wonder, like my comical image of Jesus is that he must be going, Oh, y'all got it totally wrong. You know, <laughs> like the, the goal was to get you right with your hearts to be able as we come back to like last week and this week to be able to operate in love mm -hmm. and that was my hope that was my hope that's what i imagine him saying mm -hmm. i didn't come to save y'all <laughs> i came to teach you how to save yourselves mm. um or or be born to something new in yourself and therefore in in society do you do you agree with that i do agree with that yeah and and um uh i'm i'm also going to talk a little bit this sunday about because i think it's so crucial to what this collection of writings that we call the sermon on the mount is to talk about the pentecost story mm. and it's <coughs> its evolution and what it means to be gifted with the spirit. I mean, if you take the Christian um, narrative, uh, literally, you know, it's incorrect because it says the Holy Spirit of God came to earth 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, which if I understand anything about evolutionary cosmology is the spirit of God has been here from the big bang mm -hmm. all along. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, the Pentecost story in the Christian documents is a reworking of the <clears throat> giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll have more to say about that on Sunday. And, and, and another thing, uh, and I won't belabor this point, but, you know, the text that we're dealing with Sunday talks about the importance of, of language. Yes. And the, the right usage of language. Yeah. And uh, I hope that I can remain consistent about this. I don't refer, I try not to refer to 
the New Testament and the Old Testament, but rather the Christian collection in the Hebrew Bible, because mm -hmm. that's the way it is. And they're not books in the Christian collection, they're documents, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mostly letters, but mm -hmm. particularly they're, a book is different from a document. Yes. And anyway, that's a minor point, but something that's important to, to put out there. Well, it gets back to also this um, this linkage of different wisdom teachings. And we started out this path with the Eightfold Path. And there is so much about um, right livelihood, right speech. And and this, this part of the Sermon on the Mount deals directly with right speech, saying so much as how you speak to someone can make or break their life. Mm -hmm. What you say to someone can kill someone. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, I, so there's, we've got to start looking at this sort of umbrella, as you have helped us do for 20 some odd years of wisdom teachings, mm -hmm. right? Speech is a wisdom teaching of Buddhism, right? Speech is a wisdom teaching of Jesus, <laughs> right? Speech is most likely wisdom teaching of Hinduism as well, because that was the sort of precursor to Buddhism, right? It talked mm -hmm. about becoming the God self and, and, and recognizing the God self within. You know, um, people might think, well, this has no practical application. And, mm. and I, I want to assure you it does. One of the things that I miss doing in my life is that um, for decades, several decades, 15 years, maybe that decade and a half, Dr. Sherry Beeman, my beautiful bride and I gave pre-marriage that first they were called, but as we got more politically correct relationship seminars mm -hmm. about four times a year. And um, we called it being one, learning to love your partner without losing yourself in the process. And when I was first trained as a psychologist in clinical training, there was no marriage and family therapy. There was no system psychology. It didn't exist. Wow. It did not exist. Hmm. Uh, it's only after I got my first set of credentials that people like Gregory Bates and, and mm -hmm. others came on the scene, Gregory Bates and writing the ecology of the mind and other people writing about system psychology. And he wasn't even a psychologist. He was no. a, yeah. He was a social scientist and anthropologist. I just literally reread something from Gregory Bates and it is just not even surprising at all that you would mention him. <laughs> yeah. And you know, he so, was married to a great uh, anthropologist, Margaret Mead. Yeah. I guess that's the title that you would, would say. But people who began to study systems and then the practical application of systems began to, to notice that in relationships that really worked well, the key ingredient was talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about communicating. I'm talking about talking. Right. And my hunch is that most people think that they know how to talk. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to sound critical or judgmental, but I can tell you as a professional, most people don't. Yeah. All of us know how to communicate, but we just don't always know what we're saying. Right. Like right. Our, our body says something different than our words sometimes. And I would say that that, so to backtrack a little bit, um, I remember when you, when we asked you if you would perform our marriage ceremony, um, 
and we went to a couple sessions to talk about what we envisioned. And I remember one of the questions being, well, have y'all ever had an argument? And at that point in our relationship, we really hadn't. We had, you know, I think right before we got married, we had one. And you said, well, I don't really believe in premarital counseling. I think you're going to need it after you get married. (laughs) And soon after we got married, we came to one of yours and Sherry's um, being one seminars. And it was one of the most lovely times I've ever had with Josh. It's a great seminar. It's a great seminar. And it's just one day, but it was um, really sweet. Um, Josh and I had a lot of really sweet moments. You and Sherry have... Um, and your teaching of it had a lot of really sweet moments. Yeah. And, and that vulnerability was really impactful for an, a newly married couple. But um, I was going to say that this, um, what, what, what has helped our marriage over the 14 years now, we're still kind of babies in the whole marriage thing, but we just signed on for another 14 years last week. So that's good. Um, <laughs> and um, every year we sign on for however many years we're celebrating. Um, and learning how to talk to each other has been so important. You know, we come into these relationships with our patterns fairly well set, you Mm -hmm. know, um, Josh and I are both quite stubborn and we can be quite defensive. And I remember in that being one ceremony or, uh, uh, workshops you saying, defensiveness can kill your marriage. Absolutely. And we had to learn how to undefend, mm-hmm. how to be like soft, mm-hmm. you know, and that soft space. I really think that's the key to almost all change, not just in our marriages and in our relationships, but in society too, like how to learn how to be soft to the other. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, then to jump to the other end of the continuum, I finished reading Dara Amiraku's book on inclusion, mm. inclusivity this morning. And he brings up this business that is in this text we're going to look at Sunday about love of a neighbor. And he says, you know, it's an ideal that's talked about in all religions and has been since the first axial age, really. But uh, he says, what do you do with the neighbor that you know has murdered women and children? Mm. And he's talking now about a neighbor as a culture, for example. Right. right. And, uh, and of course, some other culture could say the same thing about us Absolutely. as Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm particularly thinking about the, the, military drone programs that have taken out so much collateral damage as they put it euphemistically um and 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 you can't you can't really create an atmosphere of safety where people fear that what's going to happen to them is being wiped out Mm -hmm. yeah so how we talk about what it means to Love in the cultural context that is so complicated is a lot more difficult than I first thought 40 or 50 years ago. Sure, because in some way, systems become their own thing. You know, systems require people to to operate, but they take on a personality of their own that people then become part of. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of 
softening of systems feels overwhelming to the to the average layperson. When I think about um, the import that relationships play in dismantling something like racism, for example, the interpersonal relationship part feels, I don't want to say easy, but it feels direct. It feels like mm -hmm. a straight line. But the, mm -hmm. um, the dismantling, the systems part feels overwhelming and often powerless, you know? I'm thinking, I cannot think of the man's name now. He's uh, deceased. He is quite popular. And he told the story in one of his famous lectures of this senior wise fish mm -hmm. swimming one day and he swam by these two younger fish and as he swam past them, he said, how's the water? And the two young fish had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Mm. And we can be in a system that we're not aware of, not aware of how it affects us at all. And I was trying to find this part. Um, so this professor of mine wrote a book called The Passion of the Western Mind. And I actually, I actually wasn't reading a Gregory Bateson direct source, but I was reading about Gregory Bateson written through Rick Tarnas's words. And, you know, he comes up with this, um, this idea or condition called the double bind, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is this problematic situation that contradicts. So what is said and what is done contradicts one another. And that is our entire culture. And Rick Tarnas goes on to say, you know, he, Gregory Bateson was talking about it in a sort of relational way. But we have that problem in a cultural way, too. If we substitute, let's say, like the world for the caregiver and the whole of the human race for um, the child in, in the situation of the double bind, um, then the human being's relationship to the world is disrupted because mm -hmm. we're, we're confused. The world says, so our, our constitution, for example, says all men are created equal. Oh, okay, great, great, great. But we don't see it happening. We don't see it. And so we're this confused species. Um, we're, we're all a little bit in a double bind situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so our task is, I think what we said last Sunday is we have to be willing to do the deep work. Um, but, and I said Sunday, and I want to reiterate this, when I say we have to be willing to do this deep work, I am in no way implying that we can back off from doing the work of social justice. Right. I'm just saying that, that the deep work is so critical to our being effective change agents in the culture. Yeah. And uh, if we don't do it, we're going to keep getting the same outcome yeah. we've gotten so far. I, but I'm I, very, I'm very hopeful that things can be different. I go back and forth, and and I agree. I think that the deep inner work can be in tandem with social justice work. Um, we'll never get to a place of perfection in ourselves. So if we keep waiting for that to start engaging with change, with social change, we'll never mm -hmm. engage with it. Mm -hmm. But it, I, you know, it's, 
it's, I go back and forth about hope. Um, you know, Cornell West says, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. <laughs> I think I've said that to you before. Mm-hmm. Um, I have hope in things. So here, let me zoom out for a second. I don't know why this just came to my imagination. Yesterday, um, I was with my, letting my dogs go to the bathroom in the alleyway behind our house. And I hear these two bird calls calling back and forth from one another, but not like those sparrows or mockingbirds or blue jays that we see all the time or the grackles. Uh, they were big birds and I could tell by the, their call. And um, I thought, well, it's a hawk. And, you know, sometimes peregrine falcons fly through Houston as well. Um, so I recorded the sound and the, re- the best I can come up with is that it was either a peregrine falcon or a cooper's hawk. But it was these two hawks calling back and forth to one another. Mm. Back and forth, back and forth. And it was such a profound moment of beauty to be included in their conversation. Yeah. And those little things make me go, there is so much just beauty in the world. Mm. And those little moments make me feel tremendously hopeful. Mm. And then it's so easy to get back into our locked in human ways of, you know, of, of consuming too much or um, wanting too much or, or being defended. <laughs> and it's just this. So I simultaneously feel very in awe and, and, and really stunned by what the gift of the world is for us. And I sometimes feel very sad about how the human has imposed a measure of destruction on that world more than any other creature. I um, got so many responses to what you say. I don't know where to begin. Uh, For one thing, uh, we now have in our neighborhood at least two crows that have started living here. And a crow doesn't have a pretty call. They're really pretty harsh and whatever, but they're very effective in getting (laughs) whatever message they want across. And I thought when we were out walking the other day, I heard these birds and I said, those are crows. And Sherry said, yes, they are. And I said, they don't belong here. They belong in the country. (laughs) They've taken up residence in our neighborhood. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I uh, don't know if you've had a chance to see that video yet. I didn't today. I I said I was going to before we watched the podcast and I just need to sit down and do it. Well, let let me tell you about it. Dr. Jim Wilson, who is a Ordinary Life attendee, now Mm -hmm. from Florida, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, he's retired now, been made Professor Emeritus at UT Medical School. He's an outstanding, world-famous maxillofacial surgeon. Mm -hmm. After he heard us last Sunday talking about how we live in this culture where there's so much stupidity and shallowness and silliness, He sent me this link to a YouTube video, which I'm sure anybody could look up. It's an interview between the editor of the American Journal of Medicine and this very learned PhD, MD, 
a multi-degreed person from Yale about the update on the coronavirus in the world. And this guy, just first of all, listening to two people who are so smart, mm-hmm. having a cordial, highly educated conversation about something that we have had so much misinformation about since March and so much controversy and so much politicization about the topic was so refreshing, was just wonderful. But one of the things this guy, this doctor from from Yale says is, you know, we've lived in the world through plague after plague after plague. Plagues (laughs) are not new to the human race. Think of the Black Plague. Mm-hmm. And um, and he talked about realistic evaluations and assessments of the vaccine and its effectiveness, what it will do, what it can't do, a lot that we don't know yet. Yeah. We don't know what it will protect us from, keep you from spreading infection, keep you from getting sick. I mean, all of that sort of thing. But he talked about the miracle that it has been to get a vaccine in this length of time, even just to get a vaccine in this length of time. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's one of the most encouraging things that science has been able to offer us in, mm-hmm. in a long time. It used to take years to get something like this, you know? True. I mean, that, that is, so as you say that, that's the, the beauty of the human is our creativity ingenuity and adaptability i think we might be the most adaptable species on the planet i'll have to look that up but it but we are able to adapt very quickly my sadness is that sometimes we adapt at the expense of others of, of other life forms you know well okay let me let me speak to that because this is another thing that bubbled up um for me as you know one of my passionate arguments with the church has been its inability or unwillingness to be fully inclusive of all people, regardless of sexual orientation. And by fully inclusive, I mean at all levels of organized religion, Mm -hmm. that we would ordain people of LBGTQ plus status Mm -hmm. and allow them to serve, allow everybody to serve together and get married and, and, oh, yeah, yeah. and get married and, <laughs> and have and, their kids baptized like all the way all, down the, the chart <laughs> all, all, all of it so that's been that has been one of my complaints and i was uh called into the bishop's office uh, about a year and a half or so ago when we were anticipating the general conference in the Methodist denomination. And it was just to, to inform me about what was going on and, and to tell me that the likelihood, of course, this didn't happen. It's probably still going to happen at some point in the future. But uh, to, to inform me that the United Methodist Church is likely going to split over this issue yeah. about full inclusion. Protestants are good at splitting <laughs> and dividing. Yeah. Um, d- d- we, we had one effective tool in, in protesting the sale of indulgences in the Roman church. And when we got the upper hand, it became clear. We didn't have a clue what we mm-hmm. were doing and still don't, still splitting. 
And I said to the person who told me this, I said, do these leaders not realize that they are shooting themselves in the foot? Because you're not going to sell a church that excludes people to younger people in this culture. Mm -hmm. That isn't going to happen. And he said they don't see it as shooting themselves in the foot. They see it as maintaining doctrinal purity. Yeah. Okay. Now, we were complicit in this COVID-19 epidemic yep. because of economic concerns. Mm -hmm. And rather than seeing that we were risking putting hundreds of thousands of lives at risk, we wanted to maintain the profit motive. Yes. Yeah. And that and that's just, that is just, that's what's led to part of this at any rate. Oh, absolutely. The need to remain um, wealthy, powerful, and um, economically on top is America's primary motivation, and it's it's killing us. I mean, it's and, killing us. It's it's killing us beyond COVID. It's killing us morally, spiritually, and ethically on the whole, I would say. I saw an interview um, last night on TV with a 21-year-old woman who is suing the state of Florida about climate change. Huh. And the interviewer said, how much are you suing for? And she said, nothing. We just want to save, change. We just want to save the earth. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when you read what's going on with the Amazon rainforest, burning mm -hmm. down the rainforest for economic gain, the Amazon rainforest are the lungs of the earth. Yep. Yep. They literally are. I mean, they literally are. And they, the, the, the air purification, like, our very livelihood is connected to photosynthesis. If photosynthesis cannot happen through the trees and the plants and the, and the generous life forms that keep us alive, then our livelihood declines, you know? So, and, and that's just amazing to me that we can't sort of see this interconnection, this interwoven reality that we live in. So the, the parable, the parabolic teaching that we're going to look at Sunday says that if you're walking down the road mm -hmm. on the way to the court, meaning if you're heading toward judgment, which yeah. we are, mm -hmm. and there are these two or three conflicting powers, how do you make peace in such a way that we all can agree to work for our own self-interest, our enlightened self-interest how mm -hmm. do we do that I, I do not have an answer for that i don't have an answer but i think we have to keep it on the table yeah and we know that it begins with looking inside it begins with looking inside what thought do i have that became a word that did uh, harm yeah what words became policies that did harm what policies became structures that did harm. Yeah. And, and these, that's the, the, I think the Buddhist thing, thoughts become things, right? And um, that couldn't be more true.
I mean, we are living in a world where thoughts have become things that have constricted our growth. In other ways, thoughts have become things that have expanded our growth. And I, I've, I've begun to think that we are in, I've, I've said this before, but the, in universe formation, um, you know, what began as one thing had to undergo immediate separation and differentiation. Um, then after differentiation, there's a period of specification where things become specifically stars, specifically planets, specifically meteors, et cetera. On the planet Earth, that same thing happened. And then, and then the sort of end of the road of universe formation, I don't want to say it's the end, I think it's a constant cycling, is communion. So on the planet Earth, communion is, well, this whole living, breathing planet has to happen together. Like if trees die, we die, <laughs> you know, if, so, so communion is that is, is when differentiation works together. But I think right now, socially, we are in a profound period of differentiation and, and, and that leads to division before it leads to communion. Mm. And that, that's just my thought. That's how I've applied a kind of scientific theory to to social theory, but um, that is, it's impossible to think that harmony or peace, that's not, that's not, that's not the nature of life. It's not always going to be uh, kumbaya, but, but we're in such a profound period of differentiation that we are looking the other way from communion, mm-hmm. from how, how difference actually can help us operate as more mm-hmm. unified. So I'll leave you with a puzzle to deal yeah. with. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I had someone that I saw on a Zoom appointment recently who was telling me about a conversation that they had on Zoom at Thanksgiving with a family member who does not believe that COVID is real or that there is any need to take any masking precautions or social distancing or anything. And he said, how do I talk to a person like that? And I said, I'll talk to Holly. I bet she can tell me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, um, but we, we make it sound a lot easier than it is. We absolutely do. Yeah. I have these conversations. So we need to honor that this space is um, is one of great tension, and which leads me again to say that tension is where growth is, and um, sitting in that tension is required in order for differentiation to be able to do its job to head towards communion. Well, maybe the next time we do this podcast, you could elaborate on their quoting the person who said he's hopeful but not optimistic. Mm, Cornell West. <laughs> Great <Okay>. social critic. <laughs> All well, right. I've got to run. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing this. You're See y'all later. <laughs> All right. Bye.